Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I'm back again. My name is Tobias, and I'm here with Yusi. What's up? Hey, Tobias. It's summer in Finland. It's super hot, and I don't have air conditioning. So that's probably top of mind, but I'm not complaining because we sort of don't have the heat normally. And now if it's warm for two weeks, it's it's good. But mostly what I've been up to is uh, my journey with the bike and the trainer it still continues. So some of you might recall that I acquired the uh, the Garmin trainer. It's a, it's a device you fit on the bike, you remove the rear wheel, you mount the bike on the trainer with the intention that you can, like myself, I you, you can spend time on the balcony still cycling without really leaving home. So I had a problem in removing the cassette from my bike because you need to install the cassette on the trainer. Uh, eventually, I got the tools. Eventually, I got strong enough that I could I could remove the cassette. That was done. But now I've been fighting um, in connecting the numerous different sensors on the trainer and on the bike and on my watch to a single device. So that eventually when I'm training, I can get all the data and statistics on one pane of glass. And that's been an interesting journey. And I've been fiddling with the, with the radio software and the firmwares and the USB adapters. More or less, I'm done, I think. So tonight I will, I will give it my first try to see, can I actually bike when everything else is set up? <laughs> Welcome to the world of cycling indoors yes uh, I, I thought i would just hop on the bike and start cycling but then you sort of realize well i need this setting here i don't know my heart rate perhaps i need a fan perhaps i need this and that and you sort of start building the whole thing and it reminds me of an it project you're constantly facing with new obstacles that you start fixing and you sort of deviate further and further away from the original goal but it's fun at the same time and I, I've been riding a, uh, with a trainer for, I think, a year and a half or so. And it's, uh, it's a pretty good thing. You know, the technicalities aside, when you, when you have it up and running, it's pretty cool. But for me, the most important thing is I can do it when the kids are at home because I'm not out on the road. So if I'm alone with the kids for the night and they're playing in the garden or, you know, running around in the house, I can still be on the bike. And whenever... They need me. I can just jump off the bike, you know, attend to them for, you know, whatever they need, then jump up again, and and you know, it's it's a very easy thing when you have a uh, work life family puzzle that you need to uh, tend to as well. Whereas going on the open road is, of course, also very nice, but that also means I'm not at home. So that means we have to have someone else at home at all times when I'm not there. So it's a it's a nice balance. So exactly. welcome to the online world of cycling. Thank you. And perhaps in the future, I'll record an episode while I'm cycling on the bike and you can hear me fiddle with all the settings just to get the thing running. Well, Alrighty. it is multiplayer, so we can actually yeah. do that at the same time. And we'll True. just take one of the mountains so we go up one of the mountaintops. No sweat. <laughs> Sounds awful already. 
Alrighty, so what have you been up to lately? So in the last couple of episodes, I know that I mentioned that we're moving to a new house. We've been living in some packing boxes. Now we actually did move to the new house. And it's been a few intense, day, intense days to get everyone here, get everything here. Uh, but now we're in. It's a smaller house. So we're moving from a new house to an old, from a bigger house to a smaller one. But we really like this location and the area. So I think this is going to be a great chapter in, in our lives for the family. So now the, the final bits is to kind of renovate where I'm sitting right now, which is in the garage, which will be my new home office. So hopefully the audio in this episode is okay. I still have not put up any of the sound dampeners or anything like that, but I, I think it should be okay for now. So yeah, that's been taking most of my time. It's just trying to get everything from the old place to the new place. Sounds good. Um, perhaps we'll get an update in the future how the renovation is going. But the sound is, is sounding really good to my end. Uh, so today's episode is Azure Updates. And I think it's been a while since we did one because in between we had the build announcements and that sort of was also an update episode. So this June Azure Update episode will again include new announcements, new releases, new features uh, that we highlight that, that Azure currently has. Uh, which one would you like to start with? So I just found the log analytics open in Excel feature to be generally available. So that is now available in all of your Azure subscriptions. And that means you can load and refresh data directly in Excel from Log Analytics. And then, you know, I've, over the, the year here now, I've talked a lot about Azure Monitor, Log Analytics, App Insights, because monitoring is really the, the heartbeat of everything we build in the cloud. Because if we don't monitor it, we have no idea if it's actually working uh, or working as expected. So with Log Analytics open in Excel, I like that because, you know, it helps with a lot of my use cases where I can drill into the data I have. And as you know, Excel is a nice way for anyone to really work with whatever data you have. So if I have this data connected now to log analytics and I refresh it in my Excel, then I can just save it, export it. I can filter, hide columns, you know, do whatever I usually do in Excel and produce the desired report, if you will, and crunch the numbers, whatever I need to look into. Um, and I, I really like that. So you can now refresh that data. It's using the mQuery integration to log analytics. I think we talked about the mQueries, you know, in some episode just slightly, but that's what powers, you know, the integration. So yeah, to me, it's a, it's a very small update, but it will have a big impact on the use cases of my daily life where I, you know, constantly need to monitor different systems, finding anomalies, finding you know, performance bottlenecks, uh, checking out new events that has not occurred, occurred before. Using that inside of Excel, it's just a new option where I can extend my use cases, if you will, of uh, drilling into the data. So I, I did have a discussion with someone about this. And, and I think the summer is, this is not a replacement to writing your KQL queries in log analytics. So you can still go and you should go into log analytics and write your queries, or if you use an API using PowerShell or C-sharp, however you do your KQL queries, that is super powerful. So this is by no means a replacement for that. This is just an 
additional feature on top of log analytics where you can now get the data into Excel so you don't have to actually go and export a CSV file because this is what, what you had to do in the past. You had to write your query and then export as a CSV file. And then you had to open that file, select all the info and then say convert text to columns and then set it to comma delimited and then choose what goes into the columns. And then you could get a table that you can work with. Now you just say open in Excel, done. So a very minor update on the service side, but a very big update for me who's using this on a daily basis. So that was my first update. I really like this. So just to understand, does this mean now that when I open log analytics and I, I have some sort of a need to understand something from the data that I have, I do not have to write a single KQL query anymore. I can open log analytics, click load or, or uh, open in Excel. And then within Excel, I can drill down and refresh the data because that's how I'm understanding this now. And I've used the previous one that you described that you sort of export once. But to me, this seems now that you have a live connection to log analytics data from Excel. You do have a live connection, yes. Uh, but I, I would not say that you, you don't go to log analytics and say, just connect to Excel. And then because in log analytics, I have hundreds of millions or sometimes billions of rows of logs. So I don't just connect Excel to that. Uh, so it's, of course, a good idea to go to log analytics, determine what you want to open, you know, what query do you want to run, and, and then take a look from that angle. But my best advice here is because everyone's use case will be wildly different of how you monitor, how you drill down into things, take it for a spin. It is in general availability, so you should be able to just go and click the button, and then you can see what data you get in Excel, how it's presented, if you know, that is pleasing to you, then you can use it. If not, then uh, you can stay in the browser or connect to KQL any other way. Sounds good. Once we're done with recording this episode, I will definitely try this out. So for me, let me pick this one. In public preview, default rule set 2.0 for Azure Web Application Firewall. And initially when I read about this update, I figured, okay, so if I have WAF, Web Application Firewall, installed, there's a new default rule set that I can simply enable, and it will probably bring me more security. And that's exactly what this is. But there's a small caveat. This is only for Azure front door installations. So you have to have Azure front door, which in turn enables Web Application Firewall, Firefall for you. And this is only available for front door premium. Hmm. And in essence, what you're getting, you're getting a new rule set with additional rules and defaults. And perhaps the most interesting one is anomaly scoring. And the intention with this is to reduce false positives. So once you get a lot of traffic, and often if you have Azure front door in premium, you're expecting a lot of traffic. And then when you enable this new rule set, it has a built-in anomaly scoring in hopes that you get less false positives and you can focus on the real positives that you need to filter out or react somehow. So this is in public preview now. I'm not running front door in premium. So I think I cannot try this yet. 
but I'm sort of feeling hopeful that eventually this would be available for Azure Front Door non-premium tiers as well. Yeah, this is what kind of surprises me in, in one sense, perhaps in another, not so much, but a lot of the security offerings and a lot of you know, the uh, mentality around security is security should not be something you pay for. Security should be built in. To me, this sounds like a really great capability, but it's a bit surprising that you have to go to the premium tier to get it because in the end, it's about keeping your data and your systems safe. And that should, at least in my opinion, be something that is at all times um, you know, highest priority of the service vendor, in, in this case, uh, Microsoft. Uh, so let's see where that goes. I will take it for a spin. I really like this idea of the an anomaly scoring to reduce the false positives and stuff like that, because this is sometimes uh, when using front door, you can say, I, I want to detect or I want to actually block when you, when you have the web application firewall. And when you do the detection mode, you can see that sometimes it's blocking things it's not supposed to block or it's allowing things it was supposed to block. So this is um, you know, a false positive. So anything that can reduce the amount of false positives will of course be very welcome. So on my end, the next update that I took a look at is Azure Key Vault Managed HSM. That is hardware security module. So that is now a fully managed, highly available, single tenant, high throughput, standards compliant, cloud service. So that was a lot of stuff uh, in one sentence. And this is the uh, uh, to safeguard the cryptographic keys for your cloud applications. So with, with HSM or Azure Key Vault Managed HSM, I think we mentioned this in an update episode a couple of months back, but at that point it was just released as a preview. This is now GA, so this is available in production. It uses FIPS 140-2 level three validated HSMs, which is very good. Uh, FIPS is a very high standard. Uh, so if you're into compliance, you might know what that is. If you're not, just Google FIPS 140-2 and you will see what that is. So with this, you don't need to provision, configure, patch, and maintain your hardware security modules for key management. Your HSM cluster is gonna use a separate customer specific security domain. And this is cryptographic, cryptographically isolating your HSM cluster. So what all of that means is if you're using Azure Key Vaults today, but you need to really ensure better uh, performance, you know, get into high availability space because Key Vault, if you worked a lot with it, as I have over the last couple of years, been hammering Key Vaults with our distributed cloud services, that is the main bottleneck in anything we do. The performance of Key Vault is very poor because it's key management and secret management. It's not supposed to be a CDN, you know, just delivering whatever you request. It's, it has to authenticate and authorize every request and make sure that whoever's requesting this data is actually a, a valid requester and so on. So when we make hundreds of millions of requests to a normal Key Vault, we can see that it suffers and we get throttled and we have to back off and retry and wait. Now, if you do have those problems, this might be an option because it's highly available also single tenant and with a high throughput. So this to me is, is a, a, you know, a good news uh, scenario. You can of course centralize key management and set permissions now at key, key level. So with access control, you can control that. I think in the past, when you set up an access policy inside of Azure Key Vault, you said this individual or this service account 
or this identity can read keys, read one key, list keys, put a key in there, but you could not say that this specific key gets this access or this identity get only access to this one key. Now you can do that. So you can set permissions at key level. And this is also a huge uh, use case boost for, for me. So that means I can re-architecture a couple of things I have to make use of perhaps fewer key vaults, but more granular permission control. Because now I have to split the key vaults and isolate them uh, based on access levels inside of a key vault. I might need an account to be able to read specific, read multiple or specific keys, but I cannot tell that this identity can only read key one and this one can read key two in a normal key vault. Now you can do that with Azure Key Vault Managed HSM. And then you have, of course, the normal integrations with uh, services in Azure, like Azure Storage, Azure SQL, Azure Information Protection, or AIP. This is, of course, welcome news. So if you do work with those, so in my case, we use Azure Storage a lot talking about thousands of storage accounts. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of transactions every week. So that is billions of transactions a month in storage accounts. So obviously with a native integration like that to the key vaults and then also offering a high throughput, very welcome change. This will hopefully be able to drastically improve the performance of specific parts of our infrastructure that may be suffering uh, at the moment. And finally, around that log analytics, you know, coming back to monitoring, which of course uh, is super important. Uh, audit logs for all of these things goes into log analytics. You can query it and you can see what's going on, who accessed it and so on. Um, and finally, if you're a developer or if you're in, in integrating with an Azure Key Vault somehow, uh, the API is the same as an Azure Key Vault. So migrating from your normal Key Vaults to HSM is pretty easy. So tech technically, if you're building something, it should be fairly the same. So that is also a welcome change that I really, really like. I'm thinking that if I go to Azure Portal to provision a key vault with managed HSM, the hardware security module, I think that somebody gets an email at Microsoft and then when they, they need to drive to the closest Azure data center, the location, perhaps in West Europe, that would be in the Netherlands, and they actually find the rack where I have my services and they're plugging in this USB stick. Okay, HSM enabled for uses needs now. And that's what I'm paying extra for. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's how you want to see it and, and if you know that makes you pay for the service, then that's fine. Exactly, exactly. But beyond this, I'm happy to see this evolve because I often use Key Vault for numerous different tests and small projects. I never go with the hardware option because there's an extra cost. And unless I'm really sure that I would need that added security, I'm not enabling it. But for now, it's it's in GA and it's still very affordable. This, this might be something I will start using. Okay, for me, this is a quick one. Uh, but I think it's important to highlight because we mentioned all of the previous similar announcements as well. There's a new cloud region available in Arizona, and this will be called the West US 3. And what was the state of the United States that we had a hard time uh, placing on the map? That was a couple of episodes ago. I don't know. Could it be Missouri? No, it wasn't Missouri because I know where that is, but it was 
one of the states we figured i have no idea where it is it's perhaps here or there and arizona i definitely do know because i i was driving there a couple of years ago it was super duper hot in there and reading the news now it's still hot in arizona but there's a new region now in west us3 it's part of the availability zones as well so if you're using something perhaps from west us2 you should be able to use west us3 the new one in arizona as an uh, availability zone as well but that's really all there is but i like this and, and I, I think it's actually worth uh, mentioning those updates about the new data centers one thing that keeps coming back to me is we have customers all over the world and they're asking, of course, where's my data? You know, how do you protect it? And, and what about data sovereignty? How do you make sure data doesn't leave? How do you build a high availability scenario, but still keep everything within the US or Europe or wherever you're located? Uh, so these availability zones and knowing what the paired region is with a specific region that you want to want to use is super important. So whenever there's a new region like this, it's very good to just go take a look at the uh, region pairing map to see that, okay, now in this case, Arizona is there, that's West US 3. The paired region for that is whatever. And if you're already using that, then you know that, okay, to fail over, I can start using Arizona, for example. So the next update on my side is something that is public preview. And I'm, again, coming back to monitoring and logging, which, of course, is uh, super important. Logging of audit logs, performance logs, security events, everything. Now, there's something called alert-based smart detection for application insights. And you might have heard this before, uh, like smart detection. And now, smart detection in Azure Monitor application insights uh, find potential performance failure anomalies in your applications and proactively analyzes that um, and, and it analyzes the telemetry that you get ingested into App Insights. So sudden rise in failure rates or abnormal patterns in performance, a detection is triggered, right? And this is important because sometimes, like in my case, I set up 20 different alerts or 100 alerts because I know if this happens, I need an alert. If something here happens, I need an alert. If that happens, if I have downtime, if whatever, then I get an alert. What is very difficult to do is this dynamic type of queries. Like yesterday, we made 100,000 requests to a service and we got 1,000 failures. Today, we made another 100,000 requests, but we got 9,000 failures. That is a failure anomaly. And then hopefully smart detection now will figure this out and say that, you had a spike in failures during this period, and that is an anomaly, and therefore we need to trigger an anomaly alert or a smart detection. Uh, so App Inside users can now migrate the resources to a new smart detection version. So if you use App Insights, you can do that. The migration process uh, creates, creates everything for you, if you will, and then when migrated, you can manage the rules just like any rule. So when you create alert rules and whatever, so when you actually migrate your app, uh, app insights, these gets created for you, and then you can go and manage these. So you can define the actions, what should happen when this gets triggered, a new smart detection for whatever happened, what should happen. Should you drop an email? Should you send a text message? Should you send a webhook? You know, all the normal stuff you do in Azure Monitor. You, of course, don't need to upgrade. 
And as a reminder, what I started saying here, this is public preview. So if you're in production, I would not advise going to use the public preview right now. I am using it in some of my environments where I can just tick the button and say, all right, now I need to try this. For any of my production environments where we have you know, critical data and you know, a lot of customers relying on whatever we have, always wait for the GA. Uh, things might and will change. And also usually the, the support when you're running a preview might not be up to par. Uh, so you don't need to upgrade at the moment and you don't need to upgrade when it's in GA either. You can still use the smart detection classic version. So again, if you used smart detections in the past, it could still find anomalies, it could do stuff, but that's kind of the classic approach. If you now want them as alert-based smart detections for app insights, then you need to upgrade and transition to that. So that's good to know that this is now in public, public preview. So if you're doing dev, uh, QA, demo test environment, it's a good idea to take a look at it. Uh, worst case, if you enable it and you see, oh, snap, it doesn't work. As long as it's not sensitive and production data in there, you can just wipe the app insights and set up uh, a classic one if you want uh, and just get new data. So that's a, a small update, but again, uh, for me, operating these things in the cloud and building and designing our cloud architecture and solutions, super helpful. Anything that can, you know, I, I don't want to use the word AI because it's just a smart anomaly detection, if you will, but anything that can use smartness to say that we detected an anomaly, that is super helpful because when I build my normal rules, I don't find anomalies. I just find metrics. You had 600 exceptions or 6,000, but a normal alert rule does not know that 6,000 is not good or not normal, but with anomaly detection, uh, it will trigger an alert because it's an anomaly. So that's pretty good. I have the perfect use case for this already. And I think I need to implement this uh, at home. I built a mailbox sensor. So it's a wireless sensor on the, on the mailbox. So whenever I get mail, I get a notification on Teams that I got regular mail. And it works very well. But the problem is that when the three-year-old is exiting the house, perhaps to go to the daycare in the morning, he sees the sensor on the mailbox and starts flapping the mailbox cover <laughs> like crazy so i built this small delay that i'm not getting spammed with 2000 teams messages but often he keeps banging on the mailbox for two minutes so my amazing non-smart <laughs> detection is not really working here but perhaps i will implement something like this <laughs> yeah, so good. so for me this is interesting now it's generally available azure defender for azure database for mysql also for single servers. And this same functionality is G8 now for MySQL, Postgres, and MariaDB. And what this means is that when you enable Azure Defender features, and, and you do that through Azure Security Center, there's a free trial for 30 days, and then there's the paid tier. What you need to do is you flip on a switch for Azure Defender for Azure Database for MySQL or Postgres or MariaDB. They are separate offerings uh, with separate pricing. But in preview, uh, it's still free of charge. Even though this is GA, I checked the Azure calculator, there's no price yet. Uh, what this does is that it 
aims to detect suspicious activity within your databases, something happening in those databases, somebody querying for something they shouldn't, somebody trying to update or intro data in the databases that they shouldn't. And then it gives you the associated attack tactic from Mitre and also the recommended actions on how should you investigate, how should you mitigate this threat. And finally, it gives you an option for continuing this investigation by pulling all the data to Azure Sentinel. So what I like about this is that Microsoft is, is clearly branching out with Azure Defender for all different workloads. The sad thing is that they have different prices. So you sort of need to start pick and choose and, and, and factor in the cost. But at the same time, this seamless integration with Azure Security Center and Azure Sentinel really nicely, I think, supports the whole big picture of Azure Defender. I have a couple of MySQL databases in production. So this, this might just be something that I will trial for the next couple of weeks to see what it can detect. Yeah. So, so does this detect stuff and then alert you or does it also block? Can you, can you put it into an enforce mode, if you will? No, I think this is just for detecting the suspicious activity, and then it's up to you to react. Uh, yep. A bit like in Azure Security Center, you get a recommendation that, hold on, I am seeing this account not being MFA enabled, but it has admin permission. So our recommendation is to do this, this, and this, and you get the written guidance. And often there's the quick fix button. Click here and we'll fix this for you. But I think for databases, the challenge is that it might detect suspicious activity. Perhaps somebody accessing your database directly from an unknown or untrusted IP address, which is a perfectly valid use case. But if it automatically would perhaps deny that access, you might run into problems with your production databases. So I think the key here is that you get the detailed activity log that we detected this, you need to do something about this. But at the same time, it's pushing all of this to Azure Sentinel. So if Azure Sentinel is already deployed and it's something you're, you're looking at least on a weekly basis, then this is nicely pulling together everything in one clear interface. Yep, very nice. So I think the final update on my side is a more dev-related one. I know I talked about something called Azure Dev Spaces in the past, perhaps in one of our first episodes when we started this podcast, I mentioned it at least. I've worked with that a little bit when I worked a lot with Kubernetes. Now, this has been retired, right? And I'm saying that because I also recently had a dialogue with someone where they were going for Kubernetes and you know they were setting up workloads for developers and for their teams so they could all kind of join in on the fun, if you will, for working with Kubernetes. And they were looking at Azure Dev Spaces. Now, unfortunately, this was retired on May 15th of 21. So it is already retired. And this has been replaced by Bridge to Kubernetes. So there's something called Bridge to Kubernetes, which is a lighter weight alternative uh, to many of the dev scenarios of Azure Dev Spaces. So now this is a client-only experience offered through extensions like Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. They have extensions for Bridge to Kubernetes, so go search for that. 
So the TLDR for this is Azure DevSpaces projects will no longer work, period. So the actions you need to take is if you want this type of functionality, you do need to take a look at transitioning to bridge to Kubernetes. And I'm mentioning that because we brushed on Kubernetes in many episodes. We talked about Azure DevSpaces at some point. I have written articles about that as well, where I keep seeing people come in and, and say, hey, great article. Now I want to take this for a spin. And you know, where's the most up-to-date information? Only to come back and say, well, the most up-to-date information right now is unfortunately that this has retired. So very good to know, Azure DevSpaces being replaced by Bridge to Kubernetes. So go search for that in the Visual Studio Marketplace for Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. Um, and it's a, it's a lot easier for you and your team to get up and running with this as well than with Azure DevSpaces. While Azure DevSpaces has its place, or to me, it had a place, was pretty convenient for a lot of things, was also a, a bit of a beast to manage and not super seamless. So I think this client-only approach with a lighter weight alternative, um, it's going to be beneficial. I'm a bit confused here. Uh, I'm, I might be mixing this with a couple of different services, and I've never used Azure DevSpaces beyond when it was announced, I briefly tried that out, mainly to see the selections and the configuration options. But I think Azure DevSpaces, was that perhaps announced in 2020? So about a year ago, I, I distinctly recall having this keynote demo that your, your developers can now work together with Kubernetes and just use Azure DevSpaces. And then I, I sort of lost track of that service. And to yep. me, it sounds without really knowing anything about the service, but to me, it sounds that that being a client only experience sort of underlines that Visual Studio and VS Code are powerful enough to run features and capabilities like this instead of having yet another Azure service that you sort of need to buy into and start supporting and start using. So, so the thing is, what, what you do is, um... You still need a Kubernetes cluster yeah. with an app that you want to debug. So it's not that in Visual Studio Code or Visual Studio you get like a, a, a virtual cluster as such. What you get is the tools to connect and do the remote development, if you will. That's kind of what Azure DevSpaces could do as well. When you hit F5, it was spinning up all kinds of things, uh, connecting to clusters and setting up clusters and this and this. What you do now is uh, the prerequisites, I think, for uh, using bridge to Kubernetes is that you have a Kubernetes cluster with an app that you want to debug and that you have Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. Um, and then you connect to your cluster and debug a service. So for example, if you're in, in Visual Studio Code, I know that you can, for example, bring up the uh, command menu and say bridge to Kubernetes configure. And then you can start configuring the process and say, what do you want to do? Well, you want to connect to the front-end API or the stats API or the cache API, whatever you have in your, in your uh, Kubernetes cluster. And then you can also install and use local tunnel debugging tools. So there's an open source Kubernetes extension for that. And essentially, you can just say, start a local tunnel, tunnel which is debugging on your, local, on your remote Kubernetes cluster. So you get these tools. You, you know, when we say client only, you get these tools in your toolbox wherever you are. 
and then you can connect to that remote cluster. So you still, of course, need to have Kubernetes somewhere. You know, as with DevSpaces, you hit a five and things were taken care of for you. But I really like this. You have a real cluster set up exactly the same way as your production cluster, perhaps. If you use infrastructure as code, you hopefully script it or use BICEP or ARM templates or whatever it is to get things set up or Terraform. However you do it, you have hopefully the same type of configuration across the board in all your environments. And one of those environments, then you can enable debugging. So you can actually do dev work and debug directly on the cluster to see how it behaves on the infrastructure, which is kind of cool. All right, this, this clarifies it. I at, at home, I have actually two Kubernetes clusters running on on, on different hardware. So I might try this out as well. And the last one from me, now available, uh, pricing changes for Azure Sentinel and Azure Monitor. And this is a welcomed change. So there's two things. Uh, previously, when you start your journey with Azure Sentinel, obviously you need a lot of logs and you get those from log analytics. You could buy into capacity reservations so you paid upfront on how much traffic, how, how much log traffic you're anticipating for the month. And then you could use that capacity. So it was a bit like a reserved instance with VMs and some database services, but for logs. So capacity reservation is now called commitment tiers. And you can choose between one terabyte, two terabyte or five terabyte per day commitment tiers. That's the first change. But the second one is that you're you're now paying for effective commitment tier rate and not pay as you go rate as it used to be with capacity reservation. So, and the difference here is that let's say you commit to one terabyte a day. So you're perhaps expecting 30 terabytes per month. But let's say that for two days out of that month, you're only getting 200 gigs a day. Now you're not paying for one terabyte a day and sort of essentially paying 80% extra because you're not using that. But you're committing to a tier, but you pay per effective instead of the committed pay-as-you-go rate. So perhaps a small change on paper, but I think a significant update for companies who really commit to large quantities of data and logs and see that, that it's really hard to estimate how much we're paying for. So now the effective commitment tier rate is, is a welcomed addition. Yep, very nice. I'll take a look at that, but I don't think we are at one terabyte per day. I think we've been at one terabyte per month a couple of times, but we are very selective in what we actually ship to Log Analytics for the reason that you know there's a price tag associated with it. So. This is a, a welcome change if you're playing in, in this league, um, definitely. And I, I see the benefit of that as well. So this is good to know because we are growing the data sets we have and that we log every day. It's exponentially growing. So I am expecting a higher bill every day. And I think this sort of circles back to uh, what you mentioned when we got started today on this episode on the additional security features sometimes costing you more. And I, I feel this is a fair change for customers that you can now utilize security better through Azure Sentinel, but perhaps you will be paying less. You're, you will be paying for the effective 
net result instead of something you estimated. Alrighty, so one last thing, the surprising question. And I really haven't kept track who, who has been asking who, but I think it's my turn to ask you. So the surprising okay. question is, uh, given an unlimited amount of Lego bricks, so any variety, any sort, mix and match, an unlimited amount, what would be the biggest or most elaborate thing you would be able to build in a month? Obviously, you wouldn't need to work at the same time. You wouldn't have the usual obligations in life. One month, unlimited amount of Lego bricks, unlimited selection. What could you build? So number one, that would be very bad for the environment because it's all plastic. <laughs> so obviously, my answer would be I wouldn't build anything. But to answer the question hypothetically, I mean, I just did move to a new house. And if anything, I would choose only white bricks and I would build a fence or a wall using those because I know I still have Lego bricks from when I was a kid and they're 30 years old or more. So I know they're going to be there for a long time. So perhaps if I use that one month to put all those bricks together to a thick wall around the house or the garden, um, you know, maybe it will cancel out some noise. Probably not, but it's a nice idea. That's probably the thing I would be able to do because it's super simple. You just put all the all the Lego bricks on, on top of one another and connect them to a kind of a chain. So they, they walk across the yard like a like a wall. I really don't build anything with Lego otherwise. So I don't really have any fantasy of building something. But again, coming back to the environment, <laughs> I'd, I'd rather say let's not build unlimited Legos for the sake of that. But if I did, I would probably build a wall around, replace the wooden wall that I have or the wooden fence that I have. Sounds super practical. And I, I, I think it would be a good approach, though, because you could start building the wall and realize that, well, actually, the wall needs to be higher and, and more thicker. And, and perhaps I need a window here and a gate there. You could easily spend a month building a really nice looking wall. I think so. Good stuff. As always, thank you for tuning in. And, and uh, we'd love to hear you tune in next week as well. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.